Lord, this is such an amazing passage, and we are so thankful for this testimony in your word that you've given us of your radical power to change people, to change even the most hardened enemies of you, like Saul, into someone who became a mighty servant for you and for your church. Lord, we ask that you would glorify yourself during this time of preaching, that you would instruct us and encourage us from your word. Please, Lord, by your Holy Spirit, cause me to only say that which is best to say, and be pleased by your Holy Spirit to cause us to listen attentively to your word as a form of worship, cause us to love you and to value you by paying close attention to what you have to say this morning from Acts 9, and to glorify you by submitting to it and being rightly changed by it. Do this, Lord, so you might not just be glorified in our act of worship this morning as we listen to your word preached, but so you might be glorified in our lives, and we might live lives that are more pleasing to you as a result of this message. And we pray specifically that you would change us by giving us deep hope, true hope in you and in your power to change us, in your power to change this church, and your power to change the world around us. Please, Lord, fill us with hope this morning. Fill us with hope by causing us to see you clearly, Jesus, as the one who has the power to truly and deeply change people. We ask this for your glory and pray that you would accomplish it by your spirit, also out of your love for us. Amen. All right. Well, we have been working through the book of Acts, and we come to Acts chapter 9 today. And boy, is this an amazing passage. I hope as you heard it read and had a chance to study it, uh, this is not news to you. Um, this is one of those mind-boggling, blow-your-socks-off types of passages. And I'm going to tell you today, I think that this is exactly what we need to hear right now. That's what I need to hear, and I'm in the same church that you are. I'm in the same place that you are. And so I would imagine it's probably what you need to hear too. Uh, why do I say that? Well, right now, you know, from a worldly perspective, it's very easy to get discouraged by some of the long-term struggles that we face. Uh, whether it be struggles that we face inside our church uh, over the years, especially if you've been here for a while, uh, you know that we've seen a lot of transiency. People come, people leave. Uh, we have a desire to see authentic community take root here in this church, but you know, various uh, challenges we faced in that over the years, uh, or whether it be struggles outside the church. Um, we, uh, the world at times can seem like a hopelessly lost place. Uh, maybe you have family members or friends that you've shared the gospel with many times and prayed for fervently, but they seem unchanged by the good news. Um, or even, you know, when we look at our own outreach as a church, sometimes we don't, we don't see the type of fruit um, that we would like to see come from our activities. Um, and, uh, and all of these things, you know, some of these, some of these struggles are because of us, some of these struggles are because of the world around us, um, but I think that sometimes one of the hardest things about issues like these is that they, they just don't seem to change, right? They just don't seem to change, and when you struggle with the same things for a long time, it can wear on you. It can discourage you. You can start to lose hope, uh, and so I want, I want to tell you, church family, that if you've come here this morning, if there's any part of you that feels disheartened or that feels discouraged today, if you feel spent or perhaps you felt like your worship this morning was stale because you've been sucked dry from the challenges that you face that just, that just don't seem to change, then I can tell you with confidence that this passage is exactly what you need to hear today. Why is that? Because this story in Acts 9 proves beyond a shadow of a doubt that Jesus truly changes people. He dramatically changes people. He radically changes people. He changes people's hearts. He changes people's minds. He changes people's lives. Jesus truly changes people. And he has the power to not only change you 
and to change your brothers and sisters here in this church, but he has the power to change the lost people in this area, in our family, in our, in our workplaces, and he has the power to change the world around us. Just read Acts 9. and In 20 verses, Jesus took one of the arch enemies of the church and he turned him into one of the church's greatest evangelists. Jesus changes people. So yes, we can be hopeful. How hard was Saul to change? Well, he was a zealous enemy of Jesus and his church. And that's going to be your first point today. What was it that changed Saul? It was nothing less than a real encounter with the risen Jesus. That's your second point. And how dramatically did this man, Saul, change? Well, arguably he became the greatest missionary, if not one of the greatest missionaries in the history of the world. He became an evangelist for Jesus. And that's your third point. We see Saul go from being an enemy of Jesus to having an encounter with Jesus to becoming an evangelist for Jesus. And as you hear the story today, it it should do nothing less than fill your heart with hope. It should flood your heart with hope. And that's all I want to do this morning because by seeing the power of the risen Jesus to radically change people, you should have hoped that not only you, but our church and this world can change. So let's go ahead and look at the First point together, how hard was this person to change? Point one, an enemy of Jesus. This man who Luke calls Saul is also known in the book of Acts as Paul. That's who we better know him by. He's the one who wrote most of the New Testament. But that's not the way his life started. He was not born and raised in the church. This man was an arch enemy of Jesus and his church. Last week in Acts chapter 8, we saw the work of the Holy Spirit through Philip Uh, reaching the Ethiopian eunuch who happened to be reading the word of God in his chariot. And the spirit brings Philip to the eunuch and he communicates the gospel to him. And we see the eunuch uh, converted. He, He believes in Christ. He's baptized. And then the spirit carries Philip away. And we read at the end of Acts 8 that Philip is Uh, found at Azotus, and as he passed through, he preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. So Philip is going through different towns. He's preaching the gospel. And then we come to our passage here today in Acts chapter 9, and look at how it starts. Acts 9 verse 1 says, But Saul, unlike Philip, but Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus. So that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. So this man, Saul, when it says that he was still breathing threats and murder, he was actually introduced to us back in Acts chapter 7. Remember, Acts chapter 7 was where we saw the martyr of, of Stephen. And it says that Paul was still breathing threats and murder. So the persecution that started in Acts chapter 7 was an ongoing thing. He was continuing to persecute the church. In Acts 7, we read this. This is in verse 58 of Acts 7. It says, and they cast him, that Stephen, out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. That's where Luke introduced him. And in verse, in, in verse 1 of chapter 8, it says, Saul approved of Stephen's execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him, but Saul was ravaging the church like a wild animal, like a beast of a man. He was attacking his prey, and his prey was the church of God. And it says, entering house after house, Saul dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Saul was hunting down professors of this heretical way, heretical in his mind. He desired to see them punished. You see, Saul, he was a, he was a zealous Pharisee. And in his eyes, what he was doing was noble. He was serving Yahweh. 
in his allegiance to God, he saw this movement, this Jesus movement, as something that must be opposed. In Acts chapter 26, Paul says this in verse 9. He says, I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. This man, Saul, literally supported the murder of Christians. He supported the murder of our fellow believers. And he continues in Acts 26, he says, And I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme. And in raging fury, raging fury, an unquenchable wildfire of anger, says, Against them I persecuted them even to foreign cities. This man even went to foreign cities in his hunt for Christians. So committed was Saul to the persecution of believers that we read in verse 1 of our passage today. Look at verse 1. It says, Saul went to the high priest and asked him, notice Saul's the one who's leading the charge on this, he asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, which was 135 miles from Jerusalem, by the way, asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Notice it says, if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, these were, these were men or women, real men, Real women, real people with real lives. Real stories, real dreams, real hopes, real struggles, real families. These were people's sons and daughters. They could have been people's husbands or wives or fathers or mothers. People just like us, men and women. In Acts 22, Paul says, I persecuted this way to death. And in one synagogue after another, I imprisoned and beat those who believed in Christ This was a man who imprisoned Christians. This was a man who beat Christians. This was a man who cast his vote for the murder of Christians. And in verse 1 of our passage, it describes him as, quote, breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. So much animosity against followers of Jesus, against people just like us, against his church, against the precious people of God. This Pharisee, this religious zealot, this man filled with raging fury against the children of God, hunting down believers in foreign cities, seeking their punishment, supporting their death. Surely if there's any type of person that we wouldn't expect to change, that we think couldn't be changed, if there are any grounds for discouragement or hopelessness for anyone, Saul would be it. He would be the guy. But this man, this is the man that Jesus changes. Jesus changes him. You think you're hard to change? You think people in this area are hard to change? Look at Saul. Jesus changed him. Now, please, I don't want you to misunderstand me. I'm not downplaying the difficulty involved in changing a person. On the contrary, I'm going to upplay it for you, if that's a word. Uh, Because the Bible actually says that every single person, you and me included, was just as hard for God to change as Saul. You say, I never persecuted Christians. I never blatantly opposed the church like Saul did. Well, Luke, the one who wrote the book of Acts, said otherwise in Luke chapter 11, verse 23. Quoting Jesus, he said, Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. And if we're honest with ourselves, there was a time when all of us were not with Christ. Right? And Luke makes it very clear, if we were not with him, 
than we were against him. Even if you were born in the church like I had the blessing of being, you were born an enemy of God. You were born against God. And as Saul, the person who Jesus changes here, later says in his letters to the Ephesians, he says that you were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. And just look at your life. You almost don't even, you almost don't even need the word of God to know that this is true. You know that you haven't submitted to the, to the law of God. He says, do not murder, and you commit murder in your heart. He says, do not commit adultery, and you lust and commit adultery in your heart. He says, do not lie, and you lie. He says, do not covet, and you covet. He says, love me with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And instead we do what? We love ourselves and worship ourselves and make ourselves God. Even the good things that we did apart from Christ, we were not doing them for God. We were doing them for ourselves. We didn't seek his glory. We sought our own glory. You don't think you were opposed to God? You were, by nature, an enemy of God. And like Saul, you were not with Jesus. You were against him and against his cause. I would argue, and I think you probably agree, that it's harder to move a human heart than it is to move a mountain. Right? At least with mountains, you can uh, pave roads through mountains if you have enough dynamite, right? It takes a lot of power, but we have the power to do it. But no amount of dynamite can turn a child of wrath into a child of God. No power on earth can turn an enemy of Jesus into a friend of Jesus. The Bible says it is impossible for us to change ourselves, let alone anyone else. So what can change a person? What can change a person like Saul and a person like us, according to the Bible? What is, what's more powerful than dynamite? The answer is the risen Jesus. Let's look at the second point, an encounter with Jesus. Verse 3 you can read with me. Now, as Saul went on his way, he approached Damascus on foot. This may have been a six-day journey, so he's almost at the end here. And suddenly, a light from heaven shone around him. This is a brilliant light that starts to shine around Paul. And as we learn later from the book of Acts, it shines in front of the other people too, around the other people too. This is a light of blazing glory. When this happened, it was already noontime during the day, so the sun is shining and it's out. But Paul says that this light was brighter than the sun. It was so bright that it literally blinds Paul. He's not able to see afterwards for three days. And the only way he gets his sight back is because he's miraculously healed. So here he is. He's on his way to Damascus, and all of a sudden this brilliant light, brighter than the sun, shines all around him, and it's so light it literally blinds him. Verse 4, it says, falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Saul falls to the ground. That's the appropriate response, right? When people meet God, that's typically what they do. They, they put their face in the dirt, which is the right place to put it. In verse 5, Saul said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Wow, can you imagine what the shock must have been like for Saul in that moment? Can you imagine what a punch to the gut that must have been for him? Those words, I would hazard a guess, probably took his breath away more than the blinding light. And if he hadn't been already knocked to the ground, those words would certainly put him there. I am Jesus. He's saying, what? This, this is the Jesus? This is the one that these heretics have said is risen? 
the one who these, these people follow after and adore, these people that I have raged against, these people I've, I've hunted and imprisoned and beaten and voted to have killed, this Jesus, he, he really did rise. He really has ascended. I see him now with my own eyes, robed in unapproachable light and blinding glory. He really is the Messiah. And these men and women are right. These people were right. What have I done? What, is this, what does this mean? Jesus, he stops this man dead in his tracks. And he meets him right there on the path to destruction. And for Paul, his road to Damascus, he was on that road to go and persecute Christians, but it wasn't just the road to Damascus for him. He was on the road to hell. And Jesus, he suddenly steps in and he absolutely levels Saul. And what does Jesus say next? Does he pour out his vengeance on Saul? Does he avenge the blood of all of the saints that were spilled on the ground that Saul participated in? Would have been perfectly just for him to do so. But that's not what Jesus does. He does something different. Look at verse 6. Jesus says, But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. Jesus had a purpose for this man. He wasn't going to kill him. He was going to change him. He was going to radically change him, dramatically change him. Verse 7 says, The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice but seeing no one. His traveling partners, they saw the light too, and they had also fallen to the ground. But unlike Saul, they didn't see Jesus. They just knew that something extraordinary had happened. This was no hallucination. The people with him witnessed something miraculous. They knew something incredible had taken place. In verse 8, it says that Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. The light which surrounded Jesus' appearance blinded him. And it says, they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. Think about that for a second. That is definitely not the way Paul had planned to enter that city. Right? He had planned to enter Damascus with papers from the chief priest to persecute Christians, to have them bound and brought to Jerusalem for punishment. And instead what happens is Paul meets the risen Jesus on his way to Damascus, and he ends up entering the city blinded by the sight with others holding his hand to guide him in. What an incredible picture of his condition, is it not? Here he was before when he was physically able to see, he was spiritually blind. But now for the first time in his life, he can't see physically. He's blind, but he can truly see. For the first time, he could see the truth. Look at the next verse, verse 9. For three days, he was without sight, and he neither ate nor drank. We don't know exactly why he fasted. Some commentators suggested it was because of shock and because of his repentance. And I think both probably have some validity. He was stunned, not only from seeing Jesus in all of his blinding glory, but from the shock of what this meant for him, right? He had been horribly, terribly, devastatingly wrong in repentance. Can you, can you try to imagine for a second, put yourself in your shoes, the sheer grief and the horrible regret that must have flooded Saul's soul? The thought is almost overwhelming. You see, he had come to the, the gut-wrenching realization that he had persecuted Jesus and he had persecuted his precious people, men and women, sons and daughters of God. 
and apart from a, a recognition of Christ's forgiveness, which I, I think he probably had, that type of agonizing remorse could be catastrophic for a man. And so Luke, he leaves us with this picture of the arch enemy of this church, this person who had traveled 135 miles to hunt down Christians. He leaves us with them blind, led by the hand into the city, refusing to put food or water in his mouth. This formidable foe of the church was not so formidable for Jesus. As one person said, Saul had truly been conquered by King Jesus on the way. And we're going to come back to Saul shortly, but Luke, he actually takes us to a different character in the story now. You can go ahead and continue along in verse 10. It says, Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. Acts 22.12 calls Ananias a devout man according to the law, well spoken of by all the Jews who lived there. Continuing on in verse 10, it says, The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying. So Saul must have been seeking God's face in his fasting. In verse 12, And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. Ananias is saying, Lord, this is the man that you want me to go to? This man, this man, he came here to persecute us. This is an enemy of your people. He may do wicked things to us, to our wives and to our husbands, to our sons or daughters, our brothers and sisters in Christ. Verse 15 but the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. The question that Ananias asks the Lord, This man, this is the man that you want me to take? And the response that we get from Jesus, that yes, this man will be my instrument, it amplifies for us the stunning degree of Jesus' life-changing work on this person. This man goes from being a fierce opponent of God to being used as God's special tool. His special tool, his chosen instrument for carrying the message of Jesus and for witnessing to Jesus before the Gentiles, before the Jews, and even before rulers. In the light of verse 16, which talks about Paul suffering for Jesus, and man, did, did Paul suffer? We're going to see that play out through the rest of Acts. And Paul talks about his suffering in one of his letters to the Corinthians. As one commentator said, this man, Saul, he goes from being a persecutor of Jesus to being persecuted for Jesus. And if the tradition that we have in church history is correct, Saul died for his faith in Christ. He went from supporting the death of Christians to being willing to give his own life to being willing to die as a Christian himself. What a dramatic change. What a radical change. What a life-altering change. Jesus truly changes people. Verse 17, Ananias departed and entered the house, and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, notice those words, he calls Saul a brother. The Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. His sight was restored. Then he rose and was baptized. 
Listen to the account in Acts 22. Paul gives some more words from Ananias that Luke doesn't include here. It says, And Ananias said, The God of our fathers appointed you to know his will, he's speaking to Saul, to see the righteous one and to hear a voice from his mouth. For you will be a witness for him to everyone of what you have seen and heard. And now why do you wait? Rise and be baptized and wash your sins away, calling on his name. What glorious words those must have been for Saul to hear. Wash your sins away. Yes, Saul, all your sins. Wash away your imprisoning of Christians. Wash away the persecution. Wash away the beatings. Wash away the innocent blood on your hands. Yes, those and all your sins, Saul. Wash them away. And you too, you who are listening to this, the call is the same for you. You too can call on the name of Jesus and have all your sins washed away. All your rebellion against God, just like Saul's, can be forgiven. How? By Jesus. By the very one you persecuted. By the very one you raged against. He is the one who stands ready to forgive you. He stands not only ready to forgive you, he stands ready to change you. He stands ready to change you from a foe to his friend. He stands ready to change you from his enemy to his evangelist, from his adversary to his brother or sister. This Son of God, this Lord of glory, this same one who appeared to Saul on the road to Damascus and blinded him by the light which accompanied his presence, this man first had to become a human being just like you and me, taking on human flesh. And he did that so that he could live a life of perfect obedience to God rather than a life of rebellion and raging against God like we did. And he did that so that his perfect life of obedience to God could count for you instead of your life of rebellion and so that your life of rebellion could count for Jesus instead. And in this Lord of glory, the one who dwells in unapproachable light, he died on a Roman cross so that he could bear all of the just vengeance of God that should have been poured out on rebels like you and like me and like Saul. All of the punishment, the eternity in hell, the enemies of God like us deserved, Jesus took in our place on the cross. And the Bible says that, that this Son of God, that he rose again on the third day, so that all who are in him can have life now and forever, that Jesus didn't just pay for our sins on the cross, but that if you're in Christ, you actually died with Jesus too. Your rebellious nature, the nature that was at enmity with God, that old self dies with Jesus on the cross, and through his resurrection, you're raised to life. A new person that actually loves God and loves others and loves his church. You become a new creation through the work of Christ in his death and resurrection. You actually become someone that is for him, rather than against him. You become someone that wants to gather with him rather than scatter. And that's exactly what baptism represents. Saul gets baptized because this is what happened to him. His sins had been washed away and his old self, the old Saul, died with Jesus. It drowned in the waters of baptism. That's what it represents. It represents drowning. And as he came out of the waters, it represented his resurrection with Christ. A new person now lives. Jesus he washes away your sins, and he radically changes you. And he does this, the Bible says, for all who call on his name. As Ananias says, call on the name of Jesus. Every single person who humbles themselves before Jesus, 
and who repents of their sins, who confesses their wrongdoing before God, sees it as it is, and rightly grieves over it, like we may have a picture of Saul doing in his fasting, Everyone who grieves over their sin and turns away from it and trusts alone in Jesus to save them will be saved. And so I want to ask you this morning, is that you? Have you truly encountered Jesus yet? Has he shown you himself through his word? Has he, like Saul, knocked you to the ground by his glory? Have you wept, genuinely wept, over your rebellion against God? And have you abandoned all your attempts to make yourself right in God's eyes. Saul's religion didn't help him. Your religion, your good works don't help you. The Bible says that those things can't save. You have to abandon all of those things and trust alone in Jesus to save you. Have you called on him to save you? And has he changed your heart? Has he changed your life? If so, it will show. It will be obvious to people that you've been changed. And I'm going to tell you this, that if that's a hard question for you to answer, then the answer is no. It should not be a hard question. If you've been changed by Christ, it will be evident to you, and it will not only be evident to you, it'll be evident to those in your life. Now, your conversion experience, it may not be dramatic like Saul's, but the change in your life will absolutely be radical. As others have said, you can't, you can't have an encounter with Jesus and not be changed. I'm, uh, I'm going to um, use my cousin Caden as an example here. He's technically still a member of this church, so I can use him as an example, but he's not here right now. He's away at college, um, and so uh, hopefully you won't mind me speaking about him. But Caden was my cousin. I, I knew him uh, growing up, and by the world's standards, in the world's eyes, he would not have been considered a, a very bad kid. Um, and even the day I didn't get to, um, when he was uh, kind of in his, his, his middle teens growing up, I didn't get to know him very, very much um, from the times that we saw him um, we did get to have some contact with him, and, uh, and eventually, towards the end of his, of his time in high school, Caden um, came to know the Lord. And when he did, it was evident to us, it was obvious to the people who know him, like his cousin, even though I didn't know him nearly as well as a lot of other people in his life did, I could see a real, genuine difference in his life. He went from not necessarily being a bad kid in the world's eyes, but after coming to know Christ, he had a genuine hunger for the word of God. He had a genuine brokenness over his sin. And he had a desire to share the gospel with the people in his life that didn't know Christ. Real change. Now, I can't testify for certain that anyone, um, uh, regardless of the fruit that they see, knows Christ for sure. That's only, some, that's only something that, that that person can know, right? And perseverance will tell, um, will, will prove if fruit is genuine. But what I can say is that it was obvious and evident that something had taken place. Caden was a different person. He changed. He didn't have a dramatic experience like Saul did on the road to Damascus, but it was evident to people in his life when I prayed to him that he was really changed by Jesus. Jesus changes people. I want you to notice in verse 19 the completeness of Saul's restoration here. Verse 19 it says, And taking food, Saul was strengthened. It means he was physically revived. And for some days, he was with the disciples at Damascus. You know, this is such a sweet verse, but it's probably very easy to overlook, in part because of the way the Bibles typically do the chapter divisions. But notice it says that he was with the disciples there. Just think about that for a second. Saul is now having fellowship with people that he came to imprison. 
Imagine him looking at their faces, looking to the eyes of these men and women, these precious people, people who are precious to God, these husbands and fathers and wives and mothers, these people that he, he came to pull from their lives and to punish, perhaps to have beaten or imprisoned or maybe even to support their death. These people whom he raged against, who he was breathing threats and murders against, now he's with them and he loves them and he's loved by them. They are his brothers and sisters now. You see, Saul, he is he's saved into a community as we all are, a community that he, like you, once hated. But now, because of Jesus, he loves. No one could have changed Saul like this. But Jesus can, and Jesus does. And if Jesus could change Saul, he can change you, he can change us, he can change the people around us. And he does this not because we deserve it. Praise God, each and every one of us deserved just the opposite. He does this, Saul says, because he is so gracious. Saul, this man that Jesus changed in Acts 9, wrote in his letter to the church in Ephesus in chapter 2, he says, It is by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Salvation is a work of God's grace alone. And that's why he deserves all the credit for it and all the glory for it. It's out of sheer grace that Jesus radically intervenes in your life, that he stops you dead in your tracks, on your path, on your road to hell, and he changes your heart. So like Paul, you can sing, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now am found, was blind, but now I see. Jesus saves people. He radically and dramatically changes people. How much exactly had Jesus changed Paul? Go ahead and look at the last point, an evangelist for Jesus. Verse 20, this is what it says. And immediately, how soon? Immediately, Saul proclaimed Jesus in the synagogues, saying, he is the son of God. He preached Jesus. The one he once opposed, now he proclaims. He says, this Jesus, he is the Messiah. In Acts 26, we get some more details about what Paul preached. It says in, in verse 19 that he declared, quote, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. So he preaches the gospel. He's preaching the gospel to them. He's an evangelist now. What was the response of the people? Verse 21, all who heard him were amazed. I bet they were. And said, is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of all those who called upon his name? Yes, it is that man. And has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests? Yes, he had come here for that purpose. But instead of binding them, now he's joining them. And now he's proclaiming Jesus too. Verse 22, it says, Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. They're bewildered. They're stunned. The word here could possibly mean that they're even distressed. Not only is this man no longer opposed to Jesus, now he's persuasively proving that Jesus was the Christ. It was a complete turnaround, a complete transformation. I want you to imagine if Joe Biden came out in a press conference tomorrow and he announced that he was aligning himself with the Republican Party. It'd be shocking news. Or imagine if the California legislator decided tomorrow to uh, pass a bill that banned abortion in the state of California. 
Or imagine if the mayor of San Francisco came out saying that she was going to fight for the sanctity of marriage and no longer wanted pride celebrations taking place in her city. Well, for Saul of Tarsus, a zealous Pharisee and a persecutor of Christians, to become a Christian and then to proclaim Christ himself, it would have been a similarly radical and shocking change in the eyes of the world. And we know that the change in Paul's heart was even greater than what the world recognized. He went from being a dead man to being a man who is now alive in Christ. See, Jesus, he doesn't just make minor adjustments to people. He's not concerned about a little bit of behavior modification, about just a little bit of tweaking here and there. He radically changes people from the inside out. And we see here Saul is already fulfilling God's purpose for him. In verse 15, remember, God told Ananias that Saul, quote, is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. And Saul does just that. He begins by carrying the name of Jesus to the children of Israel in Damascus. And we'll see in the book of Acts, he carries this name of Jesus before the Gentiles and before King Agrippa too. In fact, this man who went from ravaging the church in Acts chapter 8 actually goes on to become one of the greatest missionaries, if not the greatest missionary in church history. What was it that changed him? It was nothing less than an encounter with the risen Jesus. Now the good news for you this morning, church family, is this. The same risen Jesus who knocked Saul to the ground on the road to Damascus is still risen today. He is still risen today. He dramatically changed Saul, and he stands ready to dramatically change you and to dramatically change our church and our world. Look at the change in Saul. That's what you have to hope in. That's the power of Jesus. He truly, deeply, radically changes people. And so what should you do in light of that? If you truly believe that, I want to give you a few things that this means for you. Number one, it means that you should pursue him more. If you want to see things change in your life, you need to start by encountering Jesus yourself. If not, then you can't expect much to change. You have to come before him yourself every day and you have to stare at him in the blinding light of his glory and be knocked down to your feet. Seeing Jesus changes people. See him more. Encounter him more. Put your face in his word every day. Spend more time in his word. Spend better time in his word. Meditate. Ask questions. Listen to sermons. Study it. Read it. He wants to reveal himself to you. Are you pursuing him? Are you regularly encountering him? So number one, you should pursue him more. Number two, you should pray more. Is this not obvious from our passage? Since Jesus truly has the power to change people like this, and he's the only one who can change people, shouldn't we be begging him to do so? Shouldn't we be on our knees before him every day? If you want to change, if you want our church to change, if you want the world to change, go to Jesus and pray more. Again, don't expect things to change if you're not faithfully asking him. We must be completely dependent on him. And the risen Jesus, he stands ready to change us. So are you praying on your own? Are you praying with the church? I don't understand why our prayer meetings in the morning aren't filled with people there. It means either one of two things. Either we don't really care about people changing or we don't really believe that Jesus can change them. He can and he has. So be hopeful 
and pray. And then lastly, number three, you should persevere more. We don't know what Jesus plans to do here in our church or in this area, but we do know that he has the power to radically change us and those around us, just like he changed Saul. And so we have hope that he can powerfully use us here in this place, which means we persevere. We persevere in community. We persevere in hospitality. We persevere in discipleship and evangelism. We persevere in helping others encounter Jesus, knowing that Jesus truly has the power to change people. Are you persevering well in all of those areas? We see that Saul went from an enemy of Jesus to an evangelist for Jesus. How? By an encounter with Jesus. So I hope that today you're filled with hope in Jesus' power to dramatically change sinners like Saul and like you. And as a result, I hope you pursue him more, pray him more, and persevere more. Pursue him more, pray to him more, and persevere more. If you're at all disheartened today because of struggles that you faced for a while and you don't think you can change or our church or this area can change, then I tell you in love, but it simply means that we just, we just don't know Jesus well enough. See him here today in blinding light, brighter than the sun, appearing to Saul on the road to Damascus. Look at how Saul's life changed. If you're saved, look at how your own life changed. Look at how he's changed you. Jesus really changes people. Believe that and let your soul be flooded with hope by the unstoppable, life-altering, world-transforming, radical power of Jesus to change sinners like us. Let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask that he would do just that for us. Jesus, we see you here in Acts chapter 9, turning Saul, an arch-enemy of your church, into a mighty evangelist for you. And we recognize that you do do truly have the power to change people. We pray that you would cause us to believe that with all of our hearts and as a result to be filled with hope, knowing that not only can we change, but those around us in this church, in this area, and around the world, that you can bring about great change in each of us. We pray, Lord, that you would make us faithful as a result to pursuing you every day, to encountering you regularly through your word and through all the means of grace that you've given us. Lord, we ask that you would make us faithful in prayer to you, that we would be dependent on you to change us and change others, and that because we're filled with hope and your power to change, we would persevere and we would engage in all the work that you've called us to do, knowing that we have no power to bring about any true change in people, but that you absolutely do. We pray that you would do this for your glory in us and that you would bring about great things as a result. All these things we pray in your name. Amen.